Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF the podcast. This is episode 97 called Jamie. All right, guys. So let me tell you about today's guest, Jamie. I met Jamie when she emailed me about a year ago. She had been listening to my podcast and she wanted to share her story. So of course, I was happy to share it because as you guys know, I really want to share as many different stories as I can. And Jamie is married to Kathy. They are in a same-sex relationship and Kathy is 30 years older than Jamie. So we're going to talk about that, how they met and how they got together We're going to talk about the first date they went on and how Jamie showed up with a notebook full of questions. And then we'll get into their infertility story, which includes PCOS, 10 different IUIs, going through pursuing fostering and possibly adoption, and then what happened when they started doing IVF. So I will say that there was a bit of lag time between when I recorded this and when it's coming out. And Jamie, again, thank you for your patience. As you guys know, my computer crashed and I lost a bunch of stuff and I finally got it back. So that was part of the problem. So since we have talked to Jamie, I will give you guys a spoiler alert and let you know that she did actually have a baby on her third round of IVF. So we're going to hear everything that happened up until that point. And it's a great story and I'm so happy that she shared it with us. So without further ado, this is Jamie's infertility story. Jamie, how are you today? Hey, Allie. Good. Thank you. I know you are in a same-sex relationship. You're married to your wife. Yes. Uh, tell me how you guys first met. And did you guys always talk about having children or wanting to have children? Yeah. So it's funny because I've heard you ask this before. And when I was a kid and a teenager, I always kind of thought, yeah, I don't want kids. I don't, that's not for me. So I'm actually different from most of the women who are like, that's been their dream forever and ever. Mm-hmm. But I met my wife, Kathy, through basically she owned a store with some other straight couples that were friends with my parents. And I worked at the store a little bit on and off through college. And so that's kind of how we met. And then just formed a relationship. And then when I graduated from college, we kind of started, you know, dating and, and that's kind of how we got together. You know, I, at first I totally was turned off to her since she was older than me, but after I got to know her and, you know, she just showed me so much love and, and it, I don't know, it just worked really well and I love her and we're both very supportive of each other. So. Okay. Um, and I know there's this quite a significant age difference, right? Yeah. 30 years. (laughs) Okay. So tell me about that. That's amazing. How does that work out for you guys? I mean, it's fine. Of course it's, it does play into my, my story here because, you know, at this point in time, I'm in my thirties. So Mm -hmm. she's in her sixties when we first started looking into adoption and, and to answer, to backtrack a little and answer your other question about kids, we like to joke because my first date with her, I brought a notebook full of questions <laughs> and it's kind of a running joke with us now because I needed answers to my questions before I would agree to date her more. What were and the questions? <laughs> um, there were just all kinds of things. Like, how do you feel about this? What do you want to do with this? Like, 
are you okay with me having my horses? And like just all kinds of questions. Um, and she answered them all appropriately. So we're still here today, 10 years later. <laughs> but one of the questions was, you know, how do you feel about kids? Especially given the fact that at that point she was like 50. So she was open to it. I didn't know yet if I was definitely interested, but I knew that I didn't want to not have the option. So that kind of answers that. So she was open to it and would be happy to have them with someone that she really loved. And so a few years down the line, after we got married and been together, we started exploring some options. I think we did the IUI stuff first. So we went through that and we can get into all that if you want, but um, yes, I'd like to, we could have adopted like through a private adoption type situation, but they just told us that it would basically probably take a lot longer just since you know, birth mothers may or may not pick us for a, the fact that we are same sex couple. And this was back in, you know, almost 10 years, this was like eight, nine, 10 years ago. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we've come a long way with all that, but also because of the age difference, you know, birth mothers might worry that her health might decline or, you know, that the child wouldn't have the second parent as long. And those are valid concerns, of course. So anyway, that kind of put a damper on that process for us. Not a hundred percent, but anyway, we can get more into that later if you want. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. Let's start with the IUIs. So when you guys yeah. started to try, how did that work like logistically for you guys? Yeah. Um, so we did not know an, any guy that we would want sperm from. So we went through a doctor and a sperm bank. Luckily, we had some friends that were involved with a program here in Atlanta called Maybe Baby. And I don't know a ton about it. So excuse me if I'm not like saying it all correctly, but they had basically seminars where you could go for the day and learn about all different options for same-sex couples. So that's what we had done. And that's how we learned about you know going through a doctor and picking a sperm donor and things. And at this point, we didn't really think my body or my fertility would be any kind of issue. We had no reason to think that. I never had regular periods and I didn't get my first period until I was like 18, which is crazy. But I was super tiny. Like, I mean, I was maybe a hundred pounds wet when I was in high school and going Uh into college and I was super athletic with riding the horses and stuff. So the doctors just never really thought it was a problem. They were Mm -hmm. like, Oh, she's just athletic and and her metabolism is high. So it was never really a problem. But when we started going to the doctor to start the IUI process, you know, they ran a bunch of tests and did a bunch of ultrasounds. And that's when they found that I had PCOS. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so yeah. So Again, the doctor was like, oh, it's fine. Lots of women have it. You obviously don't have a lot of the symptoms because I I don't have the obesity. I don't have the male factor hair growth. You know, I don't have a lot of some of the more external symptoms, but I did have a lot of follicles or, you know, cysts on the ovaries, that sort of thing. So it was pretty characteristic on ultrasound is how they keep telling me that I have that. Mm -hmm. So the doctor felt very optimistic though. And just really made us feel like IUI was very successful and we shouldn't have any problem with it. And we were pretty naive at the time. So we, knowing what I know now, I look back and go, oh my gosh, we should have known. Like IUI is such a low success rate, but we tried and tried. We did 10 rounds of it. And I don't know why we kept going at month after month. It was just such a disappointment. And, mm-hmm. and it was donor the, sperm? It was. Mm-hmm. Okay. We actually used, I think it was like two or three different men throughout the process because you know, you would buy so much. And for IUI, you use a lot more sperm than with IVF. 
So I guess because they put a bunch in there, I'm not really sure. I know IVF, they like inject, I think one sperm into one egg. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we would buy so much and then we would go through it, you know? And so, and then by the time you go back to try to buy the same man's sperm, he would be sold out or whatever. So we actually tried two or three different men. So it wasn't even like we could blame it on that, but it just never took, we never even got a positive at all. So how did that feel for you guys? Like that must've been rough, right? It was, it was horrible. And so, yeah, by the end of the 10th round, I was like, I'm done. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I did a lot of trying. Yeah. And they made me feel like IVF was going to be huge and scary and painful. Like the way that they described it, I just didn't feel like I could, I just thought it was like this big, scary monster. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. they were, and you know, before this, remember I didn't have regular periods. So I had a period or two a year. They were very light. They were not painful. When this all started, that's the other thing with my IUI stuff. First off, every period started to become more and more painful. I think with all the drugs I was on, I was on letrozole. Mm -hmm. So I never did any of the Clomid rounds, thank God, because I've heard even worse stories about those. But I was on letrozole and metformin. And I actually became allergic to letrozole, but the doctor didn't want to like acknowledge it. I went to the dermatologist and they couldn't figure it out either. But as soon as I came off the letrozole a month later, I had a period and it was fine. I didn't have the rash anymore. So mm. that's how we kind of determined it. But every single month, the minute I would start the letrozole, I would get a rash and it would be horribly itchy and cr- like all over my body, like arms, legs, whatever. I kept thinking at first, you know, the first couple of times like poison ivy or something, mm-hmm. but it just never, it, we finally kind of figured it out after so many times, but wow. So that was horrible. And then, you know, just obviously after the two weeks, you pee on a stick and nothing. And it's like all this hard work and money. Right. And then you're paying out of pocket for all the IUIs. Yeah. I think um, our insurance probably paid some, but of course we still have to pay for the sperm ourselves yeah. and probably most of the medications um, and stuff right. like that. But I think it did pay for some, which we're very fortunate and lucky to have that. But Yeah. So after that, and she just described, you know, oh yeah, with IVF, they're going to stimulate your ovaries. They're going to be super big and painful. I'm like, oh my God, they're already big and painful. Like I can't do this. Wow. Interesting that they framed it that way. You know, I don't know what, that doctor is no longer in this city and state. I don't know where she, I think she's still practicing. I don't know. I just never really got the warm and fuzzies from her. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying she's anything bad. Maybe she's fine. I just felt like for her to have kept trying the IUIs, like knowing what I know now, she probably should have tried to get us to go a different direction earlier on. Right. Yeah. So I just like after that and with, with the way they talked about IVF, I was just like, I can't do this. Let's just not. <laughs> so we were just kind of done and emotionally yeah. broken and just like, I just had no idea I'd ever have a problem, you know? So the IUIs, you're done going down that road and now you're going to explore yep. adoption. So what yeah. is the process for you guys? Did you have to like do one of those books about yourselves as a couple <laughs> and submit it to the agency and all that? Yeah. So we first went to an agency and like I said, we just didn't feel very supported. It was more like they wanted to put up all the roadblocks instead of making us feel like we could overcome the roadblocks. So we weren't against the private adoption route, but we kind of just decided... We had a friend, a mutual friend that had 
had a family member, I think, that had adopted a few different children from DFACS, from Department of Children and Family Services, mm-hmm. um, like foster care system. So, and they had a really successful journey with that. And that kind of gave us kind of hope and, and an idea to maybe try that route. So we ended up going that route and you have to take a class for like so many hours. I think it was like several weeks we had to go like once or twice a week to this class. And then, yes, you have to do what's called a home study. Um, They come and they talk about everything from your past, your childhood, your religious beliefs, your political beliefs, how you want to raise kids. Like, I mean, discipline, everything. Like they, I mean, it's in depth. They interview both of us together and then both of us separately. And they do, they compiled like this huge notebook about us, which is crazy weird. Right. Um, No, I think it's great that they do that for so many different reasons. Did you guys ever feel like, did you feel comfortable as a same sex couple or did you ever feel like they were like looking at you guys differently? I'm curious to see if there were like any more challenges brought to the table just because I know that, you know, I'm obviously super accepting of it, but not everybody yeah. might be. So did you guys feel any of that? You know, it's odd because we're in a very small Southern country town and it's, you know, politically here, it's not really an accepted thing. Um, but we just never really felt it for some reason. I mean, that's great. I don't know. I guess I know it is. It's, it is really great. We had the social worker lady that we had, she was always super cool. Like, you know, and yeah, I don't, we just never felt any discrimination about it, but we Good. also talk all the time. Like, yeah, yeah. But like, you know what? I think it is. I think some people look for it. They, they automatically think they're going to get it. So they're kind of looking for it. Whereas we kind of feel like what, <laughs> you know, like what, what's the, what, Oh, there's something different. I didn't even know, you know, mm-hmm. I, I just don't really think about it. So maybe it's happening right under my nose and I'm just not even seeing it, but no, we didn't feel any of that. It was good. It was that part was fine. We decided at the time maybe we should go for an older child because we have a dog rescue. We have lots of dogs, lots of cats. At the time we didn't have the farm, but now we have a farm with all kinds of other animals too and we just felt like maybe an older child would be able to understand like don't leave the doors open, you know, they would be able to enjoy the dogs and take them for walks and stuff and mm-hmm. We just kind of felt like maybe that would be a good fit for our family at that time. Yeah. So you tell them what age you're open to or what ages you want. You tell them, you know, what sexes you might want, you know, girl, boy, non-binary, et cetera. And the nature of the older children, which is really sad, is a lot of them are in group homes at that point if they haven't already been adopted. Mm-hmm. And so usually the older they get in the system, I think that just in my experience, and I, I by no means have as much experience as a lot of people, but mm-hmm. they do tend to have a lot more challenges. Okay. It's really horrible. So we ended up going to, they have like different little events that you can go to and meet different children. So we went to one and we met a child at one of them. It was like a little Christmas event and she seemed really cool. And like, we really, she liked us and we liked her. And it was like, you know, kind of like dating, <laughs> like you kind of mm-hmm. see if you guys connect and we did. So we told them that we wanted to pursue, you know, her adopting her and or fostering her. And so, um, the process was like, basically, cause she was in a group home. So we would go, I think we went like once or twice a week and it was pretty far away, but we went and we'd just visit and walk around. And like, after a few of those, we were able to then take her away from the group home, just like within that town uh-huh. out to like lunch or something. 
And then after that, a couple of times, then we were able to take her for like an overnight at our house. Uh-huh. And then... And how old was she? She was 15 at the time. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, she was probably functioning at probably like a 10 to 12 year old level. And they tell you a lot of stuff. Like they tell you some of her past. They tell you any diagnosis they, they have with them, which that's something with the system. I think that, and again, these are just my personal viewpoints and opinions. I'm not saying this is the standard or right or wrong. Right. I think they throw away too many diagnoses at these kids. You know, she was on a list of medication, a list of diagnoses. So eventually after a few overnights, we were allowed to then take her in as a permanent foster at that point. And then leading to adoption was the goal. Mm -hmm. Um, So once we had her in our home, that's when they turn over her file to you. Before that, it's just whatever they tell you. Well, when they turn over, there were certain things that Kathy and I, and I don't want to go into like specifics, of course, but there were certain things that we had told them that we would not be open to certain behaviors or diagnoses, certain things that might impact, you know, at the time our dogs are our family, you know, and and yes, the child's very important too, but we have to kind of look at everything and the puzzle has to all fit together. And, you know, there were just certain things that might impact us or the dogs or negatively. And that, that they had told us about not specific to her, but in general speaking, like that some of these kids come with. And so we had told them, yeah, we couldn't handle that or we don't want that, that type of thing. Well, they kind of, I I don't know if they forgot or ignored it or whatever, but when they handed us her file, a lot of the things that we had specifically said no to were in there. And some of that behavior started to come out after she lived with us for a few months. And Mm -hmm. ultimately it wasn't going to work. And we had taken her and gotten her off of a lot of medicines and gotten her more tailored help as far as that goes and mm-hmm. gotten her into a good school program and stuff. So we were really, really trying with everything we could, but mm-hmm. ultimately we were not educated and prepared and we were not the right fit. You know, we mm-hmm. were not able to support what she needed. Mm-hmm. Um, that must've been so, so devastating was, and heartbreaking. Cause I know you guys were trying so hard and really wanted to it take was, care of her. Yeah. Cause we, t- we took pictures with her. My parents had met her and like, yeah. she, you know, again, she was functioning at a lower level. So she had like colored them pictures and they had them on their, you know, their fridge and stuff. So like, right. I think that it was just like, you know, she was part of the family already, like, you know? And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it was, it was really, really hard. And, and I'm sure for her too. I mean, I can't even imagine like this poor child who has been bounced around from foster and foster home and grew home and everything else. And here she is thinking, okay, like these people actually really want me. They want to adopt me. And, and we did, we really did. But at the same time, like it would not have been best for her to stay with us because we could not give her the support and help she needed in the ways that she needed it. We weren't, we weren't experienced enough. We weren't educated enough. Like Mm. we weren't, you know, we, we knew that going in, that's why we said no to certain things. And so I just kind of feel like the system kind of failed everybody in that regard. Did she end up going back to the group home? I believe so. They really didn't tell, you know, they don't tell you afterwards, like, Mm because they don't want obviously whatever, like, I don't know, I guess they feel like a rip of the bandaid is the better Mm -hmm. thing. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think she went either back to that one or a different one. Yeah. From what I know. So that's so, and we, we, it is, and we could have kept going with them. They were totally fine with like, they weren't, 
mad at us or like, you know, disappointed. Like they were like, okay, so, you know, do you want to keep your ages the same? Do you want to, what do you, how do you want to move forward? Like they were, they were cool, but we just felt like, oh man, like if we lied to, like not lie, I hate to say the word lie because that sounds malicious, but mm-hmm. you know, if they withheld information from us before, what's going to happen again? You right. know, we just, we just kind of lost trust in this, in the system, I guess. So we put our thing on hold. You can like do that for up to a year, I believe. And then after a year, you would have to redo all the stuff again, all the home study and the classes. Mm-hmm. We put it on hold. And then that was when we just decided, you know what, maybe kids just aren't for us. Mm-hmm. And so we just kind of glided for years and we ended up buying the farm and just kind of, we're like, I, I mean, it's funny because you talk on your on the podcast all the time about like, oh, seeing people with babies and it it's just so hard and you just don't want anything to do with it. And that's how I felt. Like, I'm just like, hey, if you have kids, that's cool. Like, do you? I just don't want to do, have anything to do with that. You know, mm-hmm. like it was that same sort of feeling. I just couldn't. It was very difficult because I couldn't be happy for other people. <laughs> yes. Um, and so we just kind of did that for a while and basically planned to just probably not ever readdress it. Okay. And then, um, and how old were you I at this you, point, Jamie? Yeah. So that was probably, gosh, I'm so bad at remembering times, but I think I was about 25 ish. Okay. So super young to be trying to raise a teenager of any capacity, honestly, right. looking back, but you know, they figured, and I figured, especially with Kathy, like balancing the age difference, like, you know, she'll have more experience in other areas that I won't have. And right. I can maybe connect, you know, more being younger, but anyway so then you know my periods were still very irregular and and non-existent for the most part but they were very painful when I did get them Mm -hmm. and so this past well January of 2019 I guess I had one of the most painful ones ever so I went to the OB and I was like look I don't know what's going on I'm like is something rupturing in there because like this is bad Mm. and that's when she asked me she goes well let me ask you my first question she goes do you want to ever have kids and I'm like Oh, boom. Like, right. It kind of hit me because I just didn't expect it or like hadn't really thought that hard about it. Like, I guess in the most recent years, Kathy and I had kind of discussed, like, yeah, maybe like a lot of our dogs are old now. And it's like, well, maybe once all the dogs go and like, you know, when the time is right kind of thing. And when she asked me, I was like, I mean, yes, <laughs> but do I think it'll ever happen? No. Yeah. And she's like, why? And I explained to her everything. And she was like, well, I think you need to go to this other clinic and talk to them, which I forgot to mention you. We did go there right after all the IUI stuff and had a consult and they did a bunch of genetic testing. And I, for some reason, remember them also telling me about like some marker I have for Down syndrome. But in my mind, all those years, I was like, oh, like if I have a kid, it would very likely have Down syndrome. So I don't want to bring a child into the world knowingly doing that. Mm -hmm. But when I met with him this time, he was like, no, I don't know where you got that thought from. You don't have that. You're fine. So I don't, I don't know where I got that or like if maybe he just discussed it or I, I, I don't know where that came from. So uh-huh. we went back to this clinic for the second time now and really they were most recommended and all that. So we felt comfortable going back to them, but she was like, yeah, just go back and have a consult and, you know, see, because if you don't want to have kids, then I would say, let's work toward getting you a hysterectomy because I think you have endometriosis plus your PCOS. And if you're not going to have kids, then let's just get you, you know, situated. And I'm like, well, I'm not ready for all that. You know, I do want kids. So it sounds so extreme. 
It does, right? It's like a shot to the, like, hey, we're done here kind of mm-hmm. feeling, I guess. And like I said, even though we just kind of been gliding and not really thinking about it, it was always in the back of my head that maybe eventually. So it's like the typical, the timing isn't right, but I'm also getting older and, and that whole magical 35 thing, you know, we know that we want more than one child because I was an only child and I did not like that. And I don't want my child to be an only child. Mm-hmm. So we were like, well, it's not the right time, but if I have a kid now, I'm like, this was last year, I was 33. It's like my first kid will be then. And I'll definitely be having kids after 35 for any subsequent ones. So we should probably go ahead and start thinking about this, you know, now. So that's what kind of spurned us into going back to the doctor and re-exploring. And so, yeah, we started IVF last year. So in January, we had our, I guess we had our consult in like March. And then it was like May that we started to gear up for the retrieval that happened in June. And he made us feel so much better than the other doctor. It was like, oh, you're going to get pregnant. You should have no problem. Like he was very confident and very much like, hey, it's not that big of a, like, it's a big deal, but it's not as big, like, it's not this big, scary monster that mm-hmm. the other doctor made me feel like it was. Would you ever do like an embryo, like your wife would go through IVF too and make embryos or was it always just going to be you or like, how did you guys figure all that out? I was about to say, I always forget because everybody asked me like, what made you decide that you're going to carry? And well, the decision was always made for me because when we first met, she had a hysterectomy and gotcha. a full like they took everything. Okay. So yeah, she had nothing left. She didn't even have eggs. She didn't have them frozen. And honestly, like, I mean, I've asked her about it. And I'm like, don't you kind of wish they had taken, like kept your eggs? And she's like, no, because by that point they were bad anyway. So she had never even like thought of or wanted kids with anybody else. So it was just because she loves me, I guess. So that's kind of sweet. But yeah, so that's how we decided it's obviously going to be me. And I mean, I think in a perfect world, like if she had had eggs, I would definitely want like maybe one of each of us to carry one. But it's not, I don't, to me, I don't, I, like I love her. Like she is my wife. Like I don't even think of it as anything different. You know, if we end up having my child, like, you know, my child, like meaning I'm carrying it. To me, it's still ours, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but when we looked for a sperm donor, you know, I think a lot of people try to look for like maybe what looks like the other partner. We didn't really care about looks so much more than brains. You know, Mm -hmm. that was super important to us. She and I both are very highly educated. We both have advanced master's degrees. So Mm -hmm. brains was very important to us. And she is very much more into the sciences and I'm much more into like the liberal arts and like kind of philosophy and thinking, you know, Mm -hmm. like that sort of thing. So we wanted something, a donor that focused more on the sciences to balance it out um, so that hopefully the child will get a little bit of both because there's no hope for me in the sciences. (laughs) (laughs) So Yeah. So actually the donor we have our embryos with now is like, I think he's getting his PhD in like some kind of engineering or something crazy. Yeah. And it was really funny. So this just like a little side note to make people laugh. Maybe I love the band, my chemical romance Mm -hmm. and Kathy, my wife really hates them. Like, I mean, if there's someone that can hate a musical band in any way, it's that like she hates them. And, um, so (laughs) I didn't realize they were so divisive as a band. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she says like, it sounds like screaming cats in heat or something. Okay. Fair. (laughs) So, Anyways, we were listening to different, we paid like a, you pay like the the bank we went with this time. Oh, this was also kind of like an interesting aside. 
the clinic we're with now actually refuses to use the bank that we used the last time. And there have since been a lot of like lawsuity, like weird things with it. So, I mean, that's kind of interesting. Like, I don't know if that played any kind of role or not, but we were like, oh, wow. Cause we actually still had a credit at that bank. And so we were originally just going to go back there and use our credit, but they were like, we won't even do it. I was like, okay, that's cool. I respect that. Mm, okay. So they referred us to this other bank and this bank. So like the original one is a quote for profit. So what they do is like you had to pay per donor to get any additional, like they give you a little snippet of information and then you pay like per donor for their pictures. Like usually it's childhood or a baby picture, any kind of like written, like they might write a letter, they might like do an audio interview or advanced medical records, but you have to pay per donor. So you kind of have to narrow down because you don't want to pay like $8 million for all these different donors that you're like thinking of. Whereas this bank is not for profit. It's actually a not for profit bank. And what they do is it's just like a flat fee. And once you pay that fee for the next month, you have access to all of the extra information on all the donors. Okay. So that was a lot nicer, of course. Mm -hmm. So when we narrowed down to this person, just based on medical and based on you know, intelligence and, and interest level and a little bit on looks, you know, just generally, I mean, we weren't super specific on that, but I listened to his audio interview and about halfway through, he's like, yeah, my favorite band is my chemical romance. And I'm just like, Oh my oh God, I'm going to be my baby daddy. <laughs> yes. And Kathy's, and Kathy's like, like, Oh great. dear God. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. She's like, we stand no chance. <laughs> oh my God. So, it was just really cool. And then he had written like a little letter and he was like, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it was just, it made me feel so warm and fuzzy. It was just like, I really want to help people. And I really hope that if you become a mother with my, my donation, like that you enjoy it to the fullest or something to that effect. And I was just like, that's just so nice. Like he mm-hmm. just seems like a really nice dude. So. Mm-hmm. And would he have been involved at all with the kid or no, it's just like a anonymous thing. And then they're done. Yeah, it's anonymous, but we, what was something that was important to us was what's called, I don't know what they actually call it, to be honest, but basically when the kid turns 18, they actually can access him if he, he wants to, because he's part of that program, but there are some that are totally anonymous. Right. And then they're, I think they're called like open or like donation or something. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So that when the kid turns 18, they can find them should they have the interest. And we wanted that because, you know, not having been in that situation myself. I don't know how it would feel to want to maybe find your, your biological. Sure. Yeah. Just so you have the option. Seems like it would exactly. be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. We went through the retrieval and that was interesting. I actually had a better experience with it than I think a lot of women do, which was great. Cause I was so scared. Mm-hmm. I've never had surgery in my whole life before that. So mm-hmm. I was like terrified, but you know, it was a lot like as far as emotionally and just with all the hormones, I was kind of like crazy for a while, but you know, doing the shots every day didn't really bother me because they were super tiny little needles. So it wasn't a big deal. I got really sore and uncomfortable by like the sixth or seventh day. Mm -hmm. And I think they had counted that I had like, I don't, something crazy, like 90 follicles. (laughs) They didn't get that many eggs, but like it was, I was ready to go. They were like, okay, like you've got this. So, and I hear people say it and I'm going to repeat it. My story is mine. Everybody has unique things. You know, my numbers may have been high, but that's, 
the PCOS, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Like Mm -hmm. even if you have one, it's all it takes is one. So I guess that's my point. But I ended up having like 40 something. It was like 41 or 44 eggs retrieved. Wow. Yeah. But I didn't get OHSS. So that was good. That was like Uh the biggest worry. And honestly, the day of the retrieval, as soon as I woke up, I was like, oh, thank God it's so much better. Like it was almost like my stomach was depleted and like I felt better. I wasn't uncomfortable. And I was like, up. I mean, they didn't want me doing anything, but I was like, okay, we've got to get the barn done. Like got to get the horses out. Like I'm already like ready to go. And Uh Kathy's like, no, you need to just sit down. Like but I was good after the surgery. I didn't have, Mm -hmm. after that, it was like home free. It was just those last few days before it. Right. And then, you know, you lose about half the numbers each Mm -hmm. time. So like, I think I only had 20 something make it to, you know, get fertilized that were mature and fertilized. And then like, we ended up with 12 that made it to the five day blast and we did PGS testing. Mm -hmm. Um, my doctor was like, you know, with everything you've already been through, let's just, eliminate anything else, you know, let's just make sure. So we did the PGS testing and six came back normal. Mm. Uh, so we had six good, healthy embryos and that was very exciting. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the only thing like, of course, people that don't go through this and don't experience this don't really understand, but I had a lot of people, not a lot, because only like two or three people knew about this, but a few people were like, Oh wow, that's awesome. Like six kids. You're going to have six kids. It's like, (laughs) well, no, that doesn't exactly how it works. Right. It's not that simple. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, uh, that'd be great, but no, I just want a couple. And then if I have extra, I'll donate them. You know, I'd be happy to do that, but no, it's not like that. You know, so we didn't do a fresh transfer. I hear a lot of people talk about that. I don't know if that's not an option with a sperm donor or what the case is, but it was never offered to us. And I think it has lower success rates anyway. So we did a frozen transfer in August. So June was our retrieval. And then by August, we were ready to gear up for the first transfer. We were so excited and so naive and like, oh yeah, so hopeful. Like it's going to work the first time. Like, of course, you know, all these people have these stories of it working the first time. So I go in for my first beta after the transfer and they call me back and they're like, you're pregnant. Good job. Like everything's great. And it was like, I've been reading so much on all the different forums and stuff. And it was pretty low. It was like 50 something, I think. Mm -hmm. So yes, it was technically positive. But in my mind, I was like, "Mm, something doesn't seem right. Mm -hmm. And they were like, no, no, it's all good. After five, it's positive. We're happy with it. It, It's all good. I'm like, okay. So we went back, whatever it was, like, I think it was over a weekend. So I think it was like four days later instead of the two days typically. And it had gone up, but it was like, it had just barely doubled. I mean, it was like maybe 98, I think. Mm-hmm. So it was still really low. It was barely doubling. They were like, it's okay. It doubled. You're fine. And they were like, come back in two days. So I come back in two days. And again, it was like 160 or something like that. Like, again, just bare. like, I mean, we're talking like maybe hitting the double. Mm-hmm. And they were like, it's okay. Come back in a week. It's doing fine. It's still going up. And I'm like, how are you feeling? Know. Like when you would get home and like leave the doctors, <sighs> you must've been so nervous. Oh God. Yes. It's so funny because now I'm not nervous anymore. Now I'm like, yeah, whatever. Like <laughs> it's going to be what it's going to be. But of course then I'm like, I want it to be good. I want it to work. But at this point I'm like, something isn't right. Something is not right. Like these are not the numbers that everybody that has like these great success stories have. And of course I was like on the forums, like looking up 
lower numbers, like tr- frantically trying to cling on to any hope stories, you know, anybody who had these low numbers in the beginning and, and still had a healthy baby. And there weren't many, but the recurring thing I kept seeing was ectopic and I started to get really scared. So it was like the next week that I went in and again, the number, I think the highest it ever went was like in the 300s. And that was like a, you know, of course the first test is like two weeks after, or like 10 days after the transfer. And then this is like another week, week and a half later. So, I mean, we're talking like, I mean, it should definitely be at that point, like in the tens of thousands by that point. Right. Um, And it was like in the 300s or whatever. And that's when they were like, okay, let's do an ultrasound and just see, you know, if we can see a gestational sac or anything at all. And they couldn't find anything. So they never even really found that it was like where it was, but they just decided that it was a pregnancy of unknown location. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was definitely not in the uterus. They think it was probably in the tube. They saw like something there that could have been it, but they couldn't be definite. So they were like, okay, you've got to go get this MTX shot and it's methotrexate. And basically it stops cells from rapidly dividing. So essentially stops the pregnancy from growing. And the problem is, so the doctor called me the afternoon to tell me that and tell me that I need to go get this shot and everything. It's a chemo drug. So it Mm. has a lot of side effects, you know, like it can make you lose your hair, which I don't, I didn't like go bald or anything, but I definitely for the next like six, three, four months, I was like losing clumps of hair, which kind of sucked. I mean, you can't tell by looking at me, but I could like see it in the shower, like my hand, Mm -hmm. I'm like, seriously? Oh my God. And it wiped me out. Like I've never been so tired in my life. Was there any other option or was that the only option they gave you was to take that shot? That's also, again, seems so extreme. (laughs) There wasn't, unfortunately, because if we let it continue, it could rupture my tooth and I would have to have emergency surgery. Gotcha. So yeah, there wasn't, which is just as an aside, there's some governor, I think it's in Ohio, correct me if I'm wrong, but that thinks that we should be re-implanting ectopic pregnancies because, you know, the whole every life counts Uh movement. And it's just like, I just have to shake my head. I'm like, you have no idea. Like if I could do that, trust me, I would have been first in line. Yeah. It's not that easy, sir. (laughs) Like, yeah. Like, please, can we, because I want my embryo back. Like, (laughs) so I just, that just made me roll my eyes. And that was, of course, that whole story came out right after I had Mm. my MTX shot and everything. I'm just like, Oh my God, I want to like throw a brick at you stupid man. But yeah, it was horrible. Like first off is horrible because I'm like, I wanted to be pregnant. Oh, Mm. and this was really bad. So there was this one nurse there at my clinic and she's not there anymore. She was fine, but she's just very like rushed all the time and very short. And one of the tests, like at this point, we knew it was not heading in the right direction, but she called me and she was like, oh yeah, you're pregnant. Congratulations. It's blah, 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 whatever the number was. And I'm like, oh no, you know what? That was after. Okay. So after the MTX, you have to go back every week and still get a beta done because they have to follow it back down to zero. That's when she called me and told me that I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to be pregnant now. Uh, like now, now I need the number to go down. Like don't, I just think she didn't read the chart. So right, to her, right. she just saw a beta number that was above five and she's like, congratulations, you're pregnant. I'm like, oh. but I'm not. <laughs> so that was, that was kind of like That's a hard blow. and annoying. Yeah. I'm just like, can you read your chart before you call me please? Right. <laughs> but yeah. So, you know, the other thing was when the doctor called me and told me I have to do all this, you know, I'm like, okay, well, when can I transfer again? Like, can we just like do it next month? You know, 
He's like, um, actually after the MTX, you have to wait three to six months at a minimum to transfer mm. because it has to completely get out of your body. You can't drink the whole time, like the whole three to six months, however long it takes for your beta to go back down. You can't do any physical activity. Which what? that was, yeah, because the idea is, so for the first couple of weeks, your number actually goes up before it goes down. And if the, it, it could still rupture your tube, even though you've had the shot. So they mm-hmm. don't want you to do like anything strenuous or any like, you know, heavy lifting and any, you know, rough physical activity because it could rupture your tube. So wow. that was actually one of the hardest parts of this whole process is like, you know, leading up to retrieval and then shortly after retrieval and then leading up, you know, after the transfer because they don't want anything to happen. And I certainly don't either. I can't, I'm really, I ride a lot, my horses and Mm -hmm. I have a whole farm to take care of. So I'm very lucky to have Kathy because she has just jumped in. Usually the farm stuff, the outside animals are kind of my thing. And then she kind of does most of the dogs and cats. So she's just been great jumping in and doing everything, which mm-hmm. is so much for one person. But it's just been annoying. You know, it just sucks to not get it to ride because that's the one thing that I do that makes me happy and that I enjoy. Right. And, you know, you're all stressed out, you know, wondering what's going to happen. And, I, you know, you can't go do the one thing that would help you de-stress, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was rough. But my numbers went down. And we were able to transfer right at the three-month mark again. Okay. So that was you know, silver lining, I guess, in it all. So that was in December, December 4th, I believe. So leading up to that, I'm like, okay, cool. This one's going to work. Like, sure. You know, everybody, the doctor, all the different nurses were all like, ectopics are like 1%. It would, it's just so rare. And it's so one off. Like that's not normal. Like you just hit the bad luck lottery for that day, you know, whatever. It's not going to happen again. Okay, cool. But I'm like, mm, something bad is going to happen. Cause just, you know, clearly this is just not going to go as easily as I was hoping and thought. So we transfer and two weeks later I have a really positive beta. Like it was good. And like every two days it was like climbing like crazy, just doing so good. And Mm-hmm. I was like a little scared to get excited, but at the same time, I was kind of excited. Like this is the first time I've been actually pregnant. Right. Um, and, and so I'm like kind of getting excited and it's so funny. Cause I've heard you say this so many times now, and this is literally me every day. I'm like wiping and I'm like, no blood, no blood, please. No oh blood. God, I know. You know, like every day. And it was like, that it was so good. Everything was great. My ultrasound was scheduled for the following week and I'm a realtor. So I had a bunch of closings one day, like all day long. It was horrible. And it was like really far away from my house, but ironically right next to the clinic. And I got out of one of the closings and I just, you know how like it feels like when you start to have your period, I'm like, uh, I need to go to the bathroom. I go to the bathroom and it's just like red. Yeah. Like my heart just like hit the floor and Kathy is a big Star Wars geek. So she had gone to see Star Wars that day because I was, I don't like it. And I was gone all day. So she was like, oh, good. I'm going to go see Star Wars. So That's she her My Chemical phone. Romance. Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> and I hate it. So I'm like, you just go by yourself. Like, have fun. <laughs> yeah. So I, she wouldn't answer the phone because she was at the movie. And I'm just like in tears. And oh luckily, I met this wonderful friend through this process. We met in one of the groups because we happened to go to the same clinic. And so we've just become friends through it all. Like we've had transfers right 
to get like at the same time. And it's been really great to have her support. So I called her and I was like, Oh my God, this just happened. I mean, of course, after calling my nurse and leaving a message on the answering line. So she was really supportive or whatever. And the nurse called me back and was like, you know, it's probably okay. Like just come in tomorrow morning because of course this was all this over the holidays. Uh So it was like, I think New Year's Eve or something like it was one of the holidays around Christmas. So it was like they were on you know, short days where they only there in the morning. And this was like one in the afternoon. I'm like, I'm five minutes from you. I don't want to drive an hour and a half tomorrow. Can I please just come in today? They were like, no, we're already gone for the day. Oh, and that's so hard. And then you have to wait the whole night until the next day. Yes. And I was in a lot of pain, actually. Like I almost, she said, if I was in a lot of pain or it got worse, I could go to the ER and have them do an ultrasound. So we went the next morning and they did the ultrasound and everything looked great actually, uh, which was like a huge relief. Like the, the, it was, it was like a a nurse practitioner that I saw. She was like, no, everything's perfect. It's all measuring, right? There's no heartbeat yet, but it's six weeks to four days. I think it was at that point. She's like, so, you know, a lot of heartbeats we don't see till seven weeks. It's okay. We're not worried about it yet at that Mm -hmm. point. So they called me that afternoon with the, actually, was it that, it, it was either that afternoon or the next morning, I'm not sure, with the beta number. And it had gone up, but it had not doubled. And it wasn't anywhere near where it was supposed to be. I think it, she said by that point, it should be like near like 80 something thousand. And it was like at like 30,000 or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was all elated after the, visit because I was like, Oh, I feel so much better. They saw it. It's there. Everything is good. Like it's okay. And then like hours later, it was like crashed to the floor again when the number wasn't high. Um, Such an emotional roller coaster. It really is. (laughs) It really is. It's just up and down and up and down. And so they had me come back. It was, I think it was like four or five days later that I went back and there was no heartbeat um, at that point. Yeah. No, thank you. It was, it was devastating. Like, and it's so weird because just from an emotional standpoint, I am typically, I'm not like a crier. I'm typically a very like straight to the point, like, okay, it is what it is. Move on. Like kind of, I just not one of those touchy feely types typically. And like the topic, while it bothered me, it was more out of frustration of like, oh, we have to do this again. Like, oh, it didn't work. It wasn't, so much of an attachment to that embryo type of feeling for some reason, the miscarriage, like, I don't know, it hit me in all the feels like more than I've ever felt in my life. Like it's Mm -hmm. just, it's something that I've heard people have gone through it and I just never really could understand how it felt like, or how they felt like, and it's like, it hit is like, wow. Okay. Like this is, this is real. Like this Mm -hmm. is a connection that like, I can't explain it's been really hard. It yeah. it really kind of took a toll emotionally on me sure. um, for a while, but I'm start, I'm just starting to, I think, get, you know, feeling a little bit better. And now I'm starting to get excited about the next one. All right, friends. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Jamie and Jamie. Thanks again for reaching out. I'm so glad that you did. And I'm so glad I got to meet you. And I'm so happy for you and Kathy now that you have your little baby. So guys, thank you so much for all the great reviews of the podcast that I've been getting and all the downloads. If you haven't reviewed it and you do have a moment, that would be amazing. Just go to Apple, drop a review, takes a couple minutes 
it really helps us get noticed and get more recognition. So the more people that hear these stories, the better, in my opinion, because as you know, we want everybody to not feel alone, no matter what they're going through. And on that note, don't forget to check out Fertility Rally, which is our membership site too. So if you or somebody you know is going through this and you'd like to join a community of people that get it, that have fucking been there and know we are open and we are accepting new members the first week of every month. We have eight support groups per month now. Four of them are our regular rally together support groups and four are pregnancy after infertility support groups because we want to be there for people at every step of the way. And we know that even when you get pregnant, your infertility journey is not over. So check us out on Instagram at fertility rally, and we will go from there and feel free to email me if you have any questions too. It's the fertility rally at Gmail. All right. Thanks for listening. Talk to you guys next time.